With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Spectrum Internet has enough speed to handle all your needs. So you can work, game, and stream with speeds up to a gig. Plus, Spectrum's advanced Wi-Fi provides enhanced security for all your connected devices. Get Spectrum Internet with fast and reliable speeds, starting at just $29.99 a month with a two-year price guarantee. Visit spectrum.com slash internet for you for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Restrictions apply. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line, as always, by Michael the Pod Pina, who is writing and covering the NBA playoffs on 538, GQ, and practically every other website. Michael, another pretty big-time weekend of basketball. I'm sure you're feeling slightly better about your Boston Celtics now that they've uh, narrowed the gap to 2-1 and they aren't uh, getting into locker room confrontations after every single game. They were able to make it now one game without one of those, which is fantastic progress uh, for your Celtics. But I think we've got to start where everyone's going to be starting today here as we tape on Monday morning, which is with Anthony Davis's game-winning buzzer-beating three-pointer, what he called the biggest shot of his life. Obviously, there's really no other comparison points. It's, this is his first time in the Western Conference Finals. He had only advanced out of the uh, first round once during his career in New Orleans. And I do feel like that shot uh, became pretty quickly, even in his own mind, Michael, a referendum on his decision to kind of force his way out of New Orleans and to Los Angeles. I think it um, had both him and LeBron doubling down kind of in the uh, philosophical bunker, standing up for themselves uh, for having the vision to try to team up and, and to chase a title together. And I think at the same time, there, there might be some voices around the league that are saying, not this story again. Not another superstar leaving a small market for a big market, and lo and behold, they go on to win a, a title in super team fashion, right? Mm-hmm. So that's still developing, and we're going to get to that. But I'm curious, very memorable shot. I would say not quite as nice as OG Ananobi shot against the Celtics uh, you know, earlier in <laughs> these <on>. playoffs. <laughs> well, I, I, that was the best moment of the entire BOA playoffs to me, personally, that shot was. But it, this was a close number, too, right? Uh-huh. What would you make of it? What do you think of uh, Denver's, you know, quote-unquote defense on the play? And were you all in? I mean, it sounds like maybe you think it was better than OG's shot. No, I no, I think OG's shot was better. But I, like, look, my first reaction was, um, and this probably just speaks to how I watch basketball sometimes, is, like, how did the Nuggets screw this up? Because as 
close as Jokic's contest was coming up from the baseline after guarding the inbounder, obviously that's not his assignment. That's not the rotation that you want. He just made a nice play. But I was just no, like, he was He was just the only person on his team with any awareness yeah. of what was happening. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so I immediately watched the replay. And first of all, I didn't realize that Plumlee was on the court until after the shot went in. That's fine, because neither did he. You know, yes. so you're on the same page. <laughs> you're just heaters right now out of you. Um, love it. Uh, so, you know, Plumlee's guarding AD, and it's a one-point game, so you're obviously concerned about the lob. That's why he's in the game. He's their tallest player besides Jokic, needs to protect the paint, protect the rim. Um, so I understand that. So I just think, like, you know, he calls for the switch before the screen is even set. Um they're so worried about LeBron slipping to the rim, understandably so, but calls for the switch with Jeremy Grant. Jeremy Grant is in perfect position between himself, between LeBron and the rim, does not need to come off LeBron. Plumlee just needed to stay glued to AD, and I, I think it's a it's a 1-1 series now. Um, there's always the opportunity where, you know, Rondo passes to AD and AD draws a foul there because... I, like Plumlee is just incomplete. This is not how he plays basketball. This is not a normal situation for him chasing a shooter uh, around screens on the perimeter. So, you know, I, I guess like from that perspective, I'm just like, damn, the Nuggets really kind of blew that one. And that, that was a, a very key defensive breakdown. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, AD, that was a great shot (laughs) it was a monster shot it was a monster shot he still has to hit the shot um and not easy at all catch and shoot situation two seconds to go down one um i mean the first thing that popped into my head after i was like damn denver was the 2015 buzzer beater he hit against the oklahoma city thunder um and just like that double clutch three i think you know which shot i'm talking about for sure yeah um that was in my opinion the biggest shot of his, or the maybe the most impressive shot of his career because he hasn't really had any quote unquote big shots, um, but my perspective is still just like, you know, this was game two. It is the conference finals, but it's game two. Uh, they were already up one nothing. If they were, if he were to miss that and it went one one, like I don't think too many people would be panicked about the Lakers' chance of defeating Denver and advancing. Um, so I I think it's a big shot. It's not like you know this gigantic season saving clutch effort so you're saying it's basically like an eight or nine out of ten rather than like a flat 10 out of 10 so here's the thing with Plumlee's defense Uh, you know we can always see what went wrong after the fact I do think it's important to put yourself in his situation as best as you can and I mean part of 80s magic as a player is that when he's standing 20 feet from the hoop, he can go in every single direction and still be a, a really legit scoring threat, right? So the idea of the lob threat, it doesn't make as much sense when you're watching Plumley just stumble around 18 feet from the hoop. It's like, what lob is getting thrown to the top of the free throw line, right? But in that moment when you're first preparing to guard Davis, he could hard cut to the hoop. It's possible. They could throw mm-hmm. a lob over the top, and you really do need to have that size. And also, probably in his mind, Plumlee's, he's used to that sort of being the action, right? When he's out there defending, he's thinking, oh, yeah, uh, most likely this guy's going to eventually try to go towards the hoop with two seconds left, and it's going to be my job to break up the pass or try to contest his layup or um, lob or whatever it might be as best I can. Um, 
clearly Plumlee is not equipped to be covering ground against three-point shooters. Um, you know, clearly Denver's got some communication issues. I know there was a clip going around this morning of Kyle Kuzma's game winner against Denver earlier during the bubble, where again, Plumlee's like pointing out switches and coverages that apparently nobody else knows. So I don't know if he's working from his own playbook or if <laughs> they just haven't, you know, practiced those kinds of situations quite enough. Um, but he winds up looking terrible and he, he takes all the heat. And I think it was deserved. I mean, I don't see any other way around that defensive um, assignment being his responsibility. And I do give Jokic a lot of credit for in that moment realizing, hey, it's panic time, you know, break away from whatever they designed in the huddle. It's time for me to go try to make a defensive play. That's the kind of instinctive stuff you want to see from players. You don't want to get too programmed in those moments, but it was a little bit uh, too little too late. So I don't know if you saw PJ Dozier punch the ball out of frustration after it went through the net. That was me because the Lakers did not deserve to win that game whatsoever. And I think, unfortunately, for Denver to really have any hope in this series, I know you're saying, well, look, is it really going to put that much pressure uh, or heat um, you know, onto the Lakers if they had lost? No, but that was Denver's chance, right? I mean, it feels like to me that they've really been outclassed in this series. They made a very spunky comeback in the second half there. I thought a lot of it was self-inflicted, though, by the Lakers, just really... Um, you know, careless turnovers, not getting good shots, taking things for granted, just feeling like, you know, they're the big brother toying with the little brother or, you know, they're the the ball of yarn toying with the cat. And it's frustrating to watch the Lakers play like that, especially in the Western Conference Finals when they're this close to uh, the championship. I felt like all their trash talk and hooting and hollering from the bench and all of Dwight Howard's antics to mess with Jokic and all that stuff, it would have been better for them to have the reset and to realize, hey, it's only 1-1 in this series. It's time to kind of put your foot down. Um, and instead, they're going to go home with AD having saved their butts, you know, up 2-0, feeling super confident and cocky and and probably cakewalking to the finals. I don't know. I just didn't like what I saw from the Lakers in that second half. And I guess you give AD all the credit for hitting a major shot. Sometimes talent can cover up for a lot of that stuff. Uh, but to me, that was a game the Lakers deserve to lose. Yeah, it's so funny how we like the narratives really just turn on a dime. Um, and you know, AD a couple positions before. First of all, he hits the go-ahead floater, and then he lets Jokic just back him down and get to his right hand in the hook in the, in the paint, which is just like, come on, that's like that was just atrocious defense by AD and that. So he could have been the goat in that situation. Um, I I don't think I'm ready necessarily to bury the Denver Nuggets, and I do want to give credit to them for how well that they played. And this is something that like kind of goes back to the Clippers series a little bit, where we are rushing to criticize the favorite for you know blowing a lead, but like the Denver Nuggets hit shots and they play hard and they keep coming, and you know PJ Dozier. Shout out to him for just like stepping into this hot house and you know being fearless. Like go, that and one drive uh, where he just puts his shoulder into AD's chest. Like where did that come from? That's incredible. So I know he flexed like I flex, Michael. You know I'm not sure. I'm not sure in reality he's as big as he thinks as he is in his own mind in that moment. But you do love to see it. Um, kind of an amazing call by Michael Malone too. Ne- didn't necessarily see that coming. But they needed it, and he was right there, right on schedule. For sure. And, you know, like, Denver's right there at the very end. They also shot only 8 for 24 from the three-point line. And Jamal Murray, 
who's basically been shooting 50% from the three-point line, or at least was shooting 50% literally in the first two rounds from deep, was two for nine himself. So I don't know. Like, if you're Denver, I don't think... Like, there's just things you can clean up here and feel pretty good, particularly just, like, how close you were to victory. I don't think this team is, like ready to pack it in entirely um and well michael can i go the other way can i be the can i be the big market jerk here um (laughs) so game one la builds a 27 point lead with lebron playing 31 minutes and basically in second gear right Uh uh-huh yep game two lebron scores 20 in the first half and then basically just decides he's only going to make mistakes in the second half which was very uncharacteristic for him and they let things get super loose. Again, even when the game gets tight, they're not really running up LeBron's minutes. They're just kind of easing you know, him in with you know, fewer than 40 minutes and relying a little bit more heavily on Davis. Um, Davis was kind of cold to start, and then he turned it on late. Like I don't think either one of the Lakers players has played close to their potential in this series. I don't think the Nuggets have good defensive answers for either one of them. Um, you know, I... Spent the first half actually in mourning for Paul Millsap's career. He's a guy I've defended for years and years. I'm not sure I felt more sympathy towards a guy than Paul Millsap during this series where just everything's going wrong. He gets to play like five minutes and then he checks out and he just sits at the very end of the bench looking so sad, Michael. Just, just you know, sadness, just waves and waves of sadness are coming over his body. Um, I just don't think he can pretty much guard anyone uh, that he needs to be able to in this series. And, you know, I think the Lakers are acting so cocky and their bench is being so ridiculous and out of control. I'm not sure it's coming through over the television, but I mean, they're just kind of taking it for granted that they're going to punk this team and that Denver's not going to be able to do anything about it. And maybe they got scared straight a little bit by Jokic with the push down the stretch and uh, some of those ridiculous baskets uh, that he was uh, kind of tossing in over his head and tipping in and all that stuff. But I still feel like it feels somewhat how they handled the Rockets later in the second round where they realized they had sort of figured out everything that Houston can do and they didn't feel like Houston could stop them. I think that's the Lakers mentality. And to me, honestly, I think it's justified. I really thank the Nuggets for making it somewhat interesting there in the second half. It wasn't a particularly interesting game in the first half. And I worry that this could break them. Is that a overreaction for me? Uh, you know, it could be a sweep. Um, at the same time, I'm not like going to be shocked if Denver ties this series up. I think that there are love some, it, love I it, Michael. That, <laughs> I, I think that there are some, you know, uh, counters that the Lakers have not even had to go to yet, and that's kind of why they're the favorite. You know, like LeBron, as you said, in the second half, and in particular in the fourth quarter, he wasn't tired. Um, he wasn't gassed. He was like still attacking the basket and just not getting calls and then just looked disgruntled and felt like the Lakers were going to win anyway. And so like, yeah, LeBron can do more. LeBron can post up every possession if he wants to. LeBron can run more high pick and rolls with AD. They can get some good stuff out of that. Um, so yeah, like they, they have different buttons to push if they actually are forced to do so. But until they're yeah. forced to do so, like the, the Denver's MO is just like, we keep coming. And Jamal Murray, when Jamal Murray is like super aggressive offensively, he honestly reminds me of Steph Curry, like 
Steph Curry at the beginning of of his meteoric rise. That's kind of the player that we've seen uh, from Jamal in the first two rounds. If he can get to that level again, and you know, I just keep looking at the two for nine from behind the three point line, which is just really uncharacteristic for him. And one of them was like a thirty five footer, just ridiculous. Um, but if he can, you know, he like, I guess like what I come back to is. The Nuggets, for them to win, they need Murray and Jokic to be exceptional. And Murray was pretty good in this game. Not exceptional. He was pretty good. And they should have won. So if you're Denver, that's what you're looking at as just a really like positive ray of sunshine. Yeah. That's the glasses 95% full view. I love that. I actually think, <laughs> you know, unfortunately for Denver, uh, the Lakers have done a better job of defending their superstars and vice versa. You know, I give a lot of credit to Dwight Howard for all the annoying a- antics and stuff. I think it has kind of thrown Jokic off. He was um, really a non-factor in game one, started very slow in game two, just didn't have the shot going. He can definitely shoot better and hopefully he gets his uh, shot on track because I think that would help open things up for Denver's offense. Um, But the Lakers have done a nice job of limiting Jokic's impact as best they possibly can, just enough to be able to give themselves a cushion. And then as you're saying with Murray and the Steph comparisons, he reminds me of Steph a little bit when he goes to that layup package going to the basket too, where even guys like Anthony Davis quite can't quite figure out how to block his layups because he's so good at positioning his body and yeah. kind of contorting and floating through the air to get himself a nice little window to finish. So I, I do like that comparison from you. Just real quick point on LeBron and his ability to kind of step things up, as you just mentioned. Um, The amount of minutes he's playing is disrespectful, okay? He's playing 34.2 minutes in the playoffs right now, which is by far a career low. The last playoff run he had was with the 2018 Cleveland Cavaliers. He averaged 41.9 minutes during that run. And people will remember the whole way that we looked at that series was anytime LeBron stepped off the court, you had to basically close your eyes with a stopwatch and just they would try to go as long as they could. Sometimes it would be like a minute. Sometimes it would be four minutes. And then they'd have to rush LeBron back on the court. So LeBron has not played one game yet in the playoffs of 41.9 minutes or more, which is what he averaged during his last playoff run. So there is so much untapped potential there for him to be able to ramp up uh, when needed. And they're just saving him, keeping his powder dry as long as they possibly can. They just barely got away with it here in game two. But I think certainly that's going to be a major X factor if you're looking ahead to a possible finals um, or even if this Nuggets series you know, does go longer. Um, you know, they, they've got a lot of room to, to ramp up there. You know, in terms of, I think, the takeaway from the Lakers so far, it's also been that they're more than just their two-headed monster. I mentioned Howard uh, defending uh, Jokic. Also, I think Rondo with that game-winning pass in Game 2. Um, and the bounce pass was just beautiful to uh, Anthony Davis. And then in Game 1 as well, uh, you know, he was uh, – both those guys, Rondo and Howard, have been big-time pluses in the plus-minus column off the bench kind of crazy career uh, resuscitation stories that I did not see coming, but both those guys have found ways to help in the playoffs. And I think when you're looking at the rest of this field, and and I think we can all agree, uh, LeBron and Anthony Davis are the two best overall players left in the playoffs. If they're getting any level of help from guys like Rondo and Howard, I mean, this is a tough, tough team to beat. (laughs) It's it's, uh, very 2020 to hear you say a sentence like that out loud. 
No, it makes no sense. Like, there's been earthquakes and, like, all these other natural disasters that we're dealing with right now. And somehow, like, out of all that, it feels like a uh, superhero movie where Rondo and Dwight Howard emerge as, like, previous version of themselves with time travel. And now they're, like, unstoppable and helpful. And look, it doesn't show up in the box score in game two. I mean, Dwight took, I think, one shot. But... It's all about just never letting Jokic get fully comfortable where he can go for 40 and dominate the entire series and orchestrate like he did against the Clippers. That's been the value of Dwight, and he came through and has done that through the first two games. Dwight, I mean, you're watching it in person, so you don't really get the the same type of vibe on television. But even if he's not shooting, I would say the camera does more close-ups of Dwight Howard than any other Laker. That's that was my one of my takeaways from watching last night's game. Like he's just such a like instigator is maybe a nice word, a nice way to put it. Uh he's a, a past. Lot, a lot of goonish tendencies out of Dwight, I would say is like the maybe harsher uh descriptor, but he's a past. Yeah, sure, that's true. Um he's really understanding his role here, I think, and he's like playing it's almost like he's overcompensating a little bit in the goonish behavior because he knows he's not going to get, you know, there's 0% chance of a post-touch for him. It's like, if you want to score, you it's like all going to come off your own activity, off your own hustle, off an offensive putback, off a, of a like a dead-end sprint in a rim-run situation. Like, so he's really embraced that. And he also, I think... Uh, knows that he's not going to be playing a ton. Uh, so there's really no, like, like every possession should honestly be played like it's his last. Whereas if you're Jokic, uh, you know, you're you're conserving energy. You're treating it more as a chess match. With, with Dwight, it's just like, I have a hammer and I'm swimming, swinging it. Um, but it's really weird. Like, who would you even say right now is the third best player on the Lakers? And does this question even, is it even relevant? right now i was gonna say that question died like probably early in the second round of the playoffs because it does not matter because their defense is so locked in and in tune together on most nights um where if you're playing five-man defense locking everything down and you've got two superstars that's a pretty darn good formula right and i think the, the lakers raised their defensive ceiling a lot in these playoffs so far they're getting just random contributions even a guy like kcp has actually been shooting the ball very very well i mean i think he's another guy who's there's a pretty long list of Lakers players who are in line for apologies if, if they wind up pulling this thing off. He's certainly in that line. But like, you know, a player like Kuzma usually would have been the answer for like the third most important offensive piece. He's been pretty quiet. I mean, you didn't really feel his presence that much in He's game okay. two. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. And this idea of like can Kuzma step up and be that guy is like you know that that will not be one of the main questions being uh, run on the television networks here or these podcasts uh, for the next couple of weeks is it's just it really doesn't matter let's go back to ad for a second because you know he made some comments and actually lebron made some comments too about their decision sort of to team up and having it pay off with that shot ad said it's for sure the biggest shot of my career when i left new orleans i just wanted to compete for a championship I know moments like this come with it, especially being in LA, the biggest market in basketball. And I feel like those words just cause a certain segment of NBA fans like their skin to crawl because they're saying, wait a minute, the only way that you can compete for a championship is by requesting a trade during the middle of a season, tanking your team's season, 
going to the big market from the small market, kind of following a similar path as LeBron to Miami or uh, Kevin Durant to Golden State. Like, what does that say about the NBA if this is what, you know, superstar level players believe they have to do to be kind of put into a situation like AD was in last night? LeBron followed that up with just some sort of generic response to critics uh, of, of, you know, kind of putting pressure on Anthony Davis for going to LA and all that. And he said, anybody can talk from the outside, but if they got into the ring or got into the arena, probably 10 times out of 10, they'd bleep their pants. And that was like his kind of walk-off thought that he left everybody with. To me, it almost felt like a bookend statement, Michael, to the famous 2011 press conference where he kind of told everybody they'd have to go back to their lives, you know, even though he had lost in the NBA finals. I mean, it's just very unapologetic and I'm going to do me and your guys are going to have to deal with it. And I know that the first time he said that that rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, Obviously, he's in a much different stage of his career. And I think he's essentially just trying to coach Anthony Davis through what could be some criticism that's coming. If they do wind up winning, I think there's going to be a lot of Laker backlash and envy and um, frustration that all these guys put this thing together and not every other team would be able to do it. All those things. I mean, what did you make of what uh, Anthony Davis and LeBron had to say? And do you kind of agree with me? They're not going to really be embraced here if they win this title by the masses, are there? There's going to be, they're going to be kind of a polarizing champion if they wind up doing this. When LeBron made his statement about stepping into the arena and crapping your pants, were you, did you want to like raise your hand and ask LeBron if he's ever had to write a column on deadline? Oh, wow. You want me to put it back on him and say, you you couldn't do what I do? Is that what you want? Uh, Well, look, no, that thought did not cross my mind. That's funny that it crossed your mind, though. That's good that you're the LeBron James of of your own, uh, you know, your your own imagination. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I agree with him 100 percent. But I mean, these are just the roles that we're all in, whatever. Um, I actually kind of disagree with you in terms of. Uh, you know, if the Lakers do win the title this year, I feel like there was no, like, I just don't, I don't think that this is a KD to Golden State situation for a variety of reasons. I think that um, the talent is just so much more spread out. AD is coming from, you know, when he wanted out of New Orleans, it was because, like, you can criticize AD for not getting to the playoffs more often, and I think that that's fair. There were some injuries suffered. Uh, there were some uh, mismanagement in the front office and coaching turnovers, etc. But, like, we all kind of understood that the organization he was in and the situation he was in was very, very difficult to compete at the highest level, regardless of how productive he was. So, Wait, it was, so, it was, so you're going to draw a contrast saying New Orleans was in a worse spot than Oklahoma City and maybe the Warriors were in a better spot than the Lakers. And, and that's how there will be a perception difference for Davis's move compared to Kevin Durant's move. Is that kind of where you're going? Well, yeah, I think that when KD left to go to the Warriors, he had, uh, you know, Russell AD had never had a teammate even close to as good as as Russell Westbrook uh first and foremost secondly you know what made the KD decision so unique and so uh uh disgusting in the eyes of a lot of fans is that that Western Conference Finals his team is up 3 games to 1 they blow that lead and he joins the team that defeated him i think that that is one of the major sticking points of the criticism and the fact it's like that that is a foundational 
um, point of contention here with how KD has operated, in my opinion. And so with Anthony Davis, it's like, obviously, he's he, he, we all knew, we could read the tea leaves that he was going to leave New Orleans eventually, and he was too shy or nice or whatever to actually demand a trade publicly until he signed with Clutch. Um, for him to go team up with LeBron... Look, LeBron is not 29 years old. LeBron is 35 years old. He was joining a situation where the entire roster was basically getting depleted aside from LeBron. Um, Obviously, we look at them and we're like, they are one of the championship contenders. They have LeBron. They have AD. That's just the historical recipe for success. But they were not an obvious favorite here. This did not turn them into this juggernaut where it was basically when KD goes to the Warriors, we're all kind of like, okay, well, I guess we can just simulate or fast forward through the next five years of the NBA because this is pointless. They're going to win the title every year. With AD and LeBron, it, it just never has felt that way, in my opinion. You have the Bucks, you have the, the Clippers. The Clippers were the favorite before the season began and throughout most of the regular season. And in the bubble, Las Vegas had them as the number one team with the best odds to win it all so I just I just don't think that that criticism is going to be I think that this has been um just like a battle of attrition throughout the bubble for a lot of these teams and whoever comes out on top is you know they should be rewarded it's a very very interesting and rational defense of the Lakers and I'm, Thank you. I'm <laughs> well what I'm wondering though is this is this a matter of rational thought or does some of the backlash here get into more emotional territory, right? Like, I personally didn't ever really see the Kevin Durant backlash coming. I would thought on very rational grounds, hey, look, he's a free agent. He can go to whatever team he wants. If I was in his spot, I would probably want to go play for the Warriors too. Seems like an awesome market, great coach. We're going to win a lot. I can be really famous, make a bunch of money in Silicon Valley. All of that sounds great to me as a low-level striver here in my own little podcasting universe, right? (laughs) And there was a lot of people out there who, like you're saying, thought it was sort of a Benedict Arnold move or a shortcut or all that stuff. And I I just, when I watched AD's shot go in, it reminded me so much of the three-pointer that Kevin Durant hit over LeBron James in the 2017 finals, where the whole career had been building up to it. No one had ever denied either one of their talents, right? But because of circumstances, they sort of never get over the hump. Here is sort of like the big time in the pressure moment validation um, that these guys have been waiting so long for. And of course, you know, Anthony Davis needs to finish the story up. They need to go in and win a title for that moment to be remembered kind of, um, you know, to its full potential. And I think I kind of cherish that shot for Kevin Durant in ways that most people are like, who cares, whatever. You know, they were bound to win that series anyways. And I wonder if some of that warping effect will happen to Anthony Davis here where people will look back and say, yeah, you know, it was a weird season. Not that they're going to say it's an asterisk necessarily, but they're just going to say, yeah, you know, the, the superstar team up worked. They got to the bubble. They were the best players. You know, it was really hard on everybody else. Um, you know, of course, the the Lakers super team where they're moving all these pieces together, you know, wound up kind of outlasting everybody else. They didn't really play fair because of the midseason trade request. And Anthony Davis never could have done it by himself if he had stayed in New Orleans. All he did was, you know, have losing teams when he was the number one guy. Like, I wonder if there's going to be a more emotional resentment and backlash or was that phenomenon driven just by Kevin Durant's personality? 
where AD is just more mild-mannered than Kevin Durant, so he's not catching uh, as much heat as Durant has in certain moments. I'm not sure Anthony Davis is like incredibly lovable as a personality. He's a little bit hard to reach and a little bit bland at times, but he's also not hateable in a way where some people found it really easy to root against Kevin Durant and to kind of hate him for his decision. So I don't know if he's going to catch as much as Kevin Durant, but I just wonder, should we be bracing for it, I guess is my question. I think we had a a much different history with Kevin Durant before he made that decision. You know, he's the league MVP. He's a, what is it, four-time scoring champion? Maybe more than that. I don't no, even know. No, co- correct, four. Yeah, four-time scoring champion. Um, there was just so many battles in the playoffs that he had. He had already reached the finals with Harden and, and Westbrook, and then we all know what happened after that. So I think the the story with... Kevin Durant is just so much different than Anthony Davis, where we just don't have the same type of relationship with him. And it kind of felt like, you know, as as a diehard basketball fan, you want to see Kevin Kevin Durant uh, kind of see it through with the Thunder and to rise up and be great despite the obstacles that were um, kind of out of his control in terms of being in a small market, um, having Russell Westbrook as your... Uh, as your your sidekick, really, even though Russell Westbrook doesn't even view himself as a sidekick. And having to, to traverse all of that would have been more impressive, I think, in the eyes of a lot of people and maybe even objectively more impressive than joining the Golden State Warriors and winning the titles the way he did. But I will say uh, that shot that he hit in 2017 over LeBron is just a... a it's like not even comparable, in my opinion, to the AD shot. It, it honestly didn't even cross my mind when I saw AD shot go in. Maybe that's just because of the fact that, again, it's game two of the Western Conference Finals. And again, we don't have the same type of backstory, um, the same emotional connection with AD that we did with Kevin Durant. So I don't really think these two are that comparable. And I also think that... Um, there's just no juggernaut now. And again, like you picked a different team to win it all. So we can't kind of go back and then say we knew all along that the Lakers were going to dominate because oh, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying that for myself. I'm just trying to forecast how the masses basically I feel burned by everybody not really being excited for Kevin Durant. And like, you know, he goes up and goes to the championship parade and there's all these jokes you know it's kind of Steph's team and Steph can have whatever contract he wants and Katie's looking around like wait a minute like I've been working nine years for this right like come on show me some love and um, he's even said how unfulfilled he felt that summer after winning it because he thought it would feel better I don't get the sense that that's going to be Anthony Davis's reaction to his first title I think he's going to feel very very happy and feel completely validated that he made the right decision by going to LA so I, it's not a perfect comparison. I guess I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what can AD's experience maybe inf- tell us or inform our understanding of, of Kevin Durant's experience? Where did KD go wrong in this? Um, you know, if AD is able to pull this off and people generally decide that they like him or they don't turn him into this villain who just chased a ring and, you know, rode LeBron's coattails or whatever other stuff people might want to say once they get there, if everyone just sort of accepts Anthony Davis is like, yeah, you know, the NBA... 
game is a little bit, uh, you know, it's a stack deck against the small markets. He understood. He was just very pragmatic in how he approached his career. He he was loyal as long as he possibly could. Then he made the right call and it paid off with the title. If everyone's just like ready to just hug the unibrow and say, hey, great job, buddy. I feel like if I was Kevin Durant, I would be outraged by that. Well, okay. This is a, I think this, this might be a too obvious of a point to make, but I think it's a critical one. With Kevin Durant, the Warriors didn't quote unquote need Kevin Durant to win the championship. He was like excess. He was just something that would put them over the top historically, that would just make them completely unguardable. But we know that, uh, you know, they probably should have won in 2016 if Draymond Green doesn't nut punch LeBron. They won 73 games that year, a record. They won the title the previous year. They had the best player in the world, two-time MVP with Steph Curry. They were just an incredible juggernaut. So they didn't need Kevin Durant. The Lakers, on the other hand, and I think this is maybe what is reflected by your reaction to AD's three-point buzzer beater, the Lakers absolutely need Anthony Davis, and they need him to play at an extremely high level to actually win the championship this season. So if he doesn't play very well, they have no chance, in my opinion, even with a two games to nothing lead against the Denver Nuggets, because this team is very thin at the end of the day. Um, and going back to who that third best player is conversation, at the end of the day, like these are they're veteran role players, and that's wonderful, and they fit really well around LeBron and AD. But it, it, it just all falls apart if AD has a bad game. That's not like, like they're not going to win unless he excels. And he's been so excellent in this postseason to earn the the applause and um, to be celebrated as he has. Like his production has been through the roof on both ends and he's been great all season long. So he's more of an integral piece in kind of getting LA over the hump than I think KD ever was with the Warriors. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, KD was um, central in making the Warriors basically unbeatable, right? Which is less fun. Which is a different qualifier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is less fun for the casual fan. And maybe that's where he turned people off. Whereas, you know, it still was a competitive game there late for sure. If AD doesn't hit that shot, the whole series dynamic changes, at least temporarily. So I definitely hear your points. I just think it's fascinating. If I was KD, I would sit back. If Anthony Davis winds up kind of winning over hearts and minds when he claims his title after bailing on the Pelicans with the midseason trade request that totally tanked their season, and you know, <laughs> just basically saying like there was only team I one team I wanted to go to, and it's the Lakers, and it's teaming up with LeBron, and he winds up, you know, everybody just decides, you know what, AD, you deserve it. Congratulations. If I was Kevin Durant, I would be so darn frustrated somehow i'm the only superstar from the last 10 years whose titles don't count to the masses it's uh it's a funny predicament to be in hey michael we got some questions here from the open floor globe and i want to run through a couple of them quickly um they emailed us openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com i picked this one for you because it's rondo related he's your guy anthony writes Watching Rondo drop that perfect bounce pass to Anthony Davis for the win brought up memories that I had with my uncle for years. Um, In his prime, Darren Williams uh, with the Jazz, he would always debate with me about the fact who was better, Darren Williams or Rondo. I grew up as a Sixers fan, so there was no reason for me to defend Rondo. However, I watched the games with my eyes and didn't fall in love with Darren Williams' box scores. Rondo always brought a winning mentality and was a better all-around player in my mind. So as Rondo walked off the court after the game, 
Uh, after the game winner, like it was no big deal, I decided to bring the debate back up just as a joke. My uncle surprisingly doubled down and still says Darren Williams was a better player in his prime. Anyone could say that Rondo obviously has had a better career, but am I wrong for still saying that his prime was always better than D. Wills? Fascinating question. Not a comparison you usually hear. Usually it's like young Chris Paul versus young D. Will or something like that. What do you think, uh, Michael? I I agree with him that if you're going for total body of career, there's really no argument. It's got to be Rondo given Boston's playoff success and all that. Um, And, you know, how quickly D. Will kind of fell off the the map and and deteriorated there after he turned 30. But uh, who do you think was better at his respective prime, Rajon Rondo or Darren Williams? Yeah, I'm going Rondo here. Um, and it's, it's pretty easy, I guess, like before I start with that case, um, I just want to say how easy it is to forget how good Darren Williams was. And the fact that we were having legitimate D will versus CP debates for what felt like years is it's really something that like, it's hard to grasp. And if you weren't alive or around or old enough to remember it, you, you kind of just can't even imagine it being possible but d will was just really like in a, in some ways he was kind of ahead of his time i mean well i, I was gonna like, say that too can you imagine if you took both chris paul and darren williams the young versions of them who could really break guys down off the dribble and you know in darren's case the physicality of going towards the hoop and you put them in this modern spread where there's it's four or five out at all times I feel like both those guys are better in the modern game than they were even 15 years ago. Yeah, very fair. I think D. Will, in a situation, in a system, if he's 100% healthy where you know he's allowed to pull up for three and just really attack off the bounce with space, as you're describing, like his numbers could have been just a monster. I mean, he was an obviously, obviously a better scorer, um, more powerful player than Rondo ever was. But when I look at Rondo, um, like just the post, I mean, a lot of this is contextual and the situation Rondo was in, like if he was drafted by the Phoenix Suns, his career would have been like over before it started, in my opinion. Um, Lands in Boston, gets to play with the big three and just the way he elevated himself on big stages, um, the way he took over entire series uh, where LeBron James was a participant or Kobe Bryant was a participant. Um, like, Darren Williams just doesn't have that. I don't, I don't know if Darren Williams, not only doesn't he, he not have that on his resume, I don't know if he could have ever done something uh, like that. I mean, like, the, the, the 2010 uh, uh, second round conference semifinals against the Cleveland Cavaliers, like, Rajon Rondo in 2010 against the Cleveland Cavaliers in the conference semifinals was just an absolute unanswerable monster. I mean, he got everybody going. Uh, He dominated the boards. He was just a walking triple-double. He could get to the basket almost at will. And he was scoring then, too. Um, You know, the jumper was always a question mark with him. And as the game kind of has evolved, that has become an even more glaring weakness. But when 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 Rajon Rondo is able to, uh, you know, get into the paint when he's confident as a finisher and a scorer he was just irrepressible so to me like I'm a little biased Rondo is my favorite player of all time but this is no question in my eyes yeah it's tricky because as we're saying that you know Darren Williams would have been better off in the modern game I think you can make a pretty strong argument that Rondo's 
best moments might not have happened in the modern game, right? Because of what his flaws were. And so he's a little bit of a relic of his own time period, but we shouldn't lose sight of that or forget about it. I think it's going to be easy for some people to gloss over how good he was. Um, But, you know, at times he was the most important person on those Celtics teams. He was the one causing the most problems for opposing defenses, especially as guys like KG and Paul Pierce got a little bit older. So he had some really high highs, I guess is my point. It pains me to give him that credit because I will never forgive him for quitting on the Dallas Mavericks and for how he carried himself at various points of his post-Celtics career where he's just stat hunting with the Sacramento Kings and you know just doing all, all these ridiculous things on the court and his inconsistent effort level. I mean, late career Rondo is one of my least favorite players of all time, but I do think you're raising lots of good points about how, how high his peak was. <laughs> and yeah. I also think there's just real, you know, there's a good version of Rondo where he is an incredible uh, leader on the court and kind of inspirational figure to his teammates, right? And there's a bad version of Rondo. And I think with D. Will, his legacy is much more there's a bad version of D. Will, right? I mean, he he blows up Utah and, and winds up sending Jerry Sloan into retirement. I'm not going to forget or forgive that ever. That was ridiculous. I mean, come on, that's Jerry Sloan. Um, and you look at his late career stuff. I mean, I thought he was the biggest reason why the Nets went down as such a monumental disappointment because Williams's career fell apart, right? So um, yeah. I think from that standpoint, you got a lot of arguments here on on, in, on behalf of Rondo. And I do think there's going to be some D-Will stands out there who are really frustrated about what his legacy winds up being because I don't think he ever convinced anybody of anything, right? Like there's not a lot of people who are standing up for D-Will's reputation. And uh, he could be one of those guys who winds up getting shortchanged by history just because he was really, really good at the beginning of his career, but he was a tough guy to root for, a tough guy to like. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I think he was just kind of happy to play golf. You know, he got into his 30s and was like, I'm I'm good. There's more to this life than throwing a basketball through a hoop. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. All right, I don't want to shortchange the Eastern Conference Finals too much, Michael. We're bearing them a little bit here. Um, there was a pretty, pretty impressive bounce-back Game 3 performance, I thought, from the Boston Celtics. It was a classic Game 3, you know, back against your wall, down 2-0. You're not supposed to be down 2-0 because of what happened in the first two games. So now it's time to come out with that, like, breakneck, crazy energy and just, you know, announce your arrival against a team that's, you know, going to be back on its heels because, uh, you know, it's sitting pretty 2-0 in the Miami Heat. Now, I'm just curious, when you were reading those reports about the Marcus Smart locker room altercation that I mentioned earlier, and it was pretty loud, Michael, I could hear it for quite a while, okay? I was standing there in the hallway listening, and, and Marcus stormed out, stormed back in, you're hearing all this stuff, who knows, maybe chairs are being thrown or something, um, you know, behind that closed door. How panicked were you? Because I saw a couple of tweets from Boston writers, oh, the Celtics are imploding. I never thought it kind of got to that. I've heard a lot of uh, locker room meltdowns in my day. Um, it wasn't the worst, not even close, uh, in terms of what I've heard you know, from various teams around the league. But as you're watching that unfold, and, and you know, obviously you're staring at the 2-0 deficit, what's your panic on a level on a, a scale of 1 to 10? I'm at a 1. Wow, uh, steely, huh? Okay. No, I, I thought that... There's thought no that, plumley to you, Michael. There's no, no plumley in your blood. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I thought that it was a good thing, if anything. I thought that, you know, the way that they lost game two was not to take anything away from the Miami Heat, who are just a relentless basketball team, but that loss was, was on the Celtics. And so for them to respond... Um, afterwards as emotionally as they did knowing that they let one get away uh, recognizing uh, accountability issues and uh, recognizing like poor effort and uh, uncharacteristic mental mistakes like that is really good to call out in the middle of a series and maybe you know you don't want to throw things around but if that's what it takes to wake everybody up and call attention to an issue and really uh, highlight the fact that they should be up in the series. They could easily have been up 2-0 in that spot or at least tied um, to a team that they feel like they are better than and statistically they probably are. Then, yeah, I thought that it was it was a good thing. It was necessary. And, uh, yeah, we saw, I guess, the results in, in Game 3 with how well they played. Can you explain something to me? Sure. When, when Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum both step up big time in game three, and yep. these guys, I thought especially Brown, the, the biggest difference to me in game three was just how aggressive he was off the dribble going to the basket. I thought he was the tone setter. He was the guy who was like, all right, 
enough of this pound, pound, pound and stand around and watch each other offense, which is not working late in games. I'm going to kind of seize control of this game and put a lot of pressure on Miami to guard me, right? Can you explain to me why the Boston Celtics media wants to give Gordon Hayward's return all the credit when Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are the reason that game turned around? First of all, I am beyond thrilled that you included Jason Tatum in your praise. This was unexpected, and it's welcomed by me. I just want to point that out. Well, it was good for him to get his work done early before, you know, uh, before those late game struggles kicked in, because that's that's sort of been, I, th- I think the story on him is maybe he's a first half performer, Michael, maybe a first three quarters performer. We'll see. But uh, no, I like Tatum. You know, I like Tatum. It's just um, I want to see him at his full potential. And there's been a couple moments here recently where I'm a little bit nervous on his behalf late in these games. But um, there's no doubt he and Jalen together. It was one-two punch. I thought Jalen, if you were to say who was better, I guess I would, you know, push come to shove. I would say Jalen was more important to that game three win. But it felt like so much of the conversation was around Hayward's return, Hayward's return. And I think it was important. Uh, don't get me wrong. But, like, that was not the headline from game three, was it? Uh, I mean, no. It's like you don't want to give the guy who scores six points uh, all the credit in turning the series around that said um i mean what gordon does to the team is just like it's huge for him to play 30 minutes was first of all a surprise uh not not a great decision by brad stevens by the way come on why why that's way too much well he's talking about how his legs about to fall off after the game okay i'm exaggerating slightly but he said he was very sore and very tired after a month off, you're going to throw a guy in 30 minutes into the fire? I I would have been more wow, conservative, it's, it's, personally. It's, it's must win. What do you want to do? And also, like, because well, I want to win a title, and I have a little confidence sure. in my team. And, like, you know, it's not all we're going to we're going to be okay. We're going to take game three if Gordo plays 18 minutes. I mean, he was throwing up some really bad shots, first of all. But he had some nice passes. I think that that's where he deserves the credit is that – some of their movement and their flow and their offensive confidence did result from his passes. I'm not trying to like tear him apart. I just thought it was weird how it got framed, you know, and like, I understand maybe Gordon comes back. So you're feeling like, Hey, there's this big momentum push. And now Boston's going to come charging back in the series. That definitely could happen. I just thought almost a guy like Jalen Brown got shortchanged in game three. Jalen was exceptional. Um, but just real quick, like when Gordon comes back, what it does not like it, it. It's more than him scoring six points or him being a plus one or him, uh, you know, in a situation late in the game where it looks like the Miami Heat are, you know, they cut it to nine and uh, the shot clock is at three and the ball's in Gordon's hands and he drives middle and finds Kemba in the corner for a three that really, you know, that was a humongous shot late in the game to kind of preserve their lead and their and 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 cut the uh, the momentum that Miami had. Um, it's more than that. It's it's the fact that uh, Shemi Ojale no longer gets to play basketball. It's the fact that Brad Wanamaker, is, as great as he has been in his role, is not uh, assuming more minutes and a greater responsibility than he can handle. Um, it's giving Brad Stevens the confidence to go small because he had no confidence to go small earlier. He was playing in his canter minutes. He was playing... Uh, you know, Rob Williams is the backup five without any confidence in his ability to defend pick and rolls. Uh, Daniel Tice is getting leaned on in crunch time with like five fouls uh, rip, game after game after game. So when you have Gordon Hayward and they, they went to the lineup where they play their five best players, 
uh, at the end of the first half. And to bring up Jalen, that is when basically he just took the game over and just said, give me the ball for like three straight Miami Heat possessions. Um, And they went back to that lineup at the end of the game and helped close it out. But like the way that Gordon just impacts the rotation and the lineups and uh, the general aggression that everyone can play with, I think is almost even more important than what he did statistically. Um, But to your point, like he also did loosen up the zone a good deal. And he does give everyone around him more confidence when he has the ball than some of the other guys. And he's someone that Miami also has to pay attention to. Um, and there are other players that Boston's been forced to play who can get ignored when they're off the ball against the zone. So his impact is like kind of difficult to quantify necessarily, um, but it's just it's huge for the team. I hear you, and I think that a guy whose impact we could quantify is Jalen Brown. And let's <laughs> let's give this guy some credit. I'm just going to keep uh, you know pounding this drum. I actually sure. was thinking during Game Three when I was watching him. It was such a different night and day performance from Jalen Brown compared to I thought earlier in the series where he was just kind of getting lost in the shuffle, right? And I think late in game two, he had a couple threes that pulled them back into it a little bit. But prior to that, he had been really, really rough. And it made me think, you know, we did our X Factor discussion, you know, prior to the series, and neither one of us brought up Jalen Brown at all. And maybe that's out of respect to the idea that, you know, he's an all star level player, even though he didn't make it this season. I'm pretty sure he was on my team, but he didn't uh, get officially selected. Um, maybe, you know, you don't want to throw an all star guy into that X Factor conversation sometimes. But I almost wonder, is he the hinge player in this series now, right? Or do you say that with with Hayward back, Boston's formula changes, their depth fills out a little bit, they're just a better overall team, they're a more stable overall team, and it's less reliant upon any one guy because... I guess when I was watching, um, you know, Jalen Brown play like that, I was, you know, Boston has been the better team for almost all of this series, um, you know, aside from the the major collapse in the second half of game two um, and not being able to, to gut out the win late in game one. Um, I wonder if that version of Jalen Brown, who was like so frustrated with himself uh, prior to game three that he said he could barely sleep. I wonder if that guy can decide the series. So I think it's okay to call him an X factor, but more specifically, I think the the bigger X factor or mid series adjustment that has been uh, that's so critical right now is just the matchup of Jalen and Duncan Robinson. And at the end of I should say the second half um, of Game Two, uh, Brad Stevens moves Jalen onto Duncan Robinson, and uh, I think Kemba Walker was guarding him a little bit earlier in the series or I'm, I'm mistaken who exactly it was but it was not Jalen and Jalen on in that matchup kind of takes away a huge chunk of what Miami likes to do um on the offensive end and a big chunk of uh what makes them so devastating and so his ability to remove Duncan as an offensive option and then on the other end just attack him relentlessly in what is obviously a mismatch as good as I think Duncan Robinson doesn't get the credit as a pretty solid individual and help defender but he's just not even close to being able to keep up with he's not like shutting down Jalen Brown or not needing severe help off the bounce like it's just not who he is so you attack him as Jalen did relentlessly in the first half 
and I think that that matchup is where it gets really interesting because if you play Duncan off the floor, all of a sudden you don't have the type of space for the uh, Dragic or Jimmy Bam Adebayo pick and rolls, and that which has been killing the Celtics, and it just gets really, really messy for you offensively if you're Miami. So I think that that matchup is more important than just uh, Jalen's uh, aggression and Jalen, you know, hunting for opportunities and transition by himself. If that makes any sense. It does. So let's talk a little bit about Miami's zone defense. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, it was kind of the story of the first couple of games, right? Boston seemed a little bit flummoxed. Did you feel like the Celtics figured something out in game three? Why was it so successful early on? And is this something you feel like will continue to play a defining role in this series? Or will the Celtics kind of work their way out of that, uh, you know, being pressed into that corner? So I think that first of all, like credit to that zone, um, the way that they put two large wings, long wings at the top and really bother Kemba Walker and really eliminate the, those high pick and rolls that are kind of the head of the snake for Boston's offense. That that's very disruptive. And I should say too, like just being in person, watching their zone, it does not look like basically any zone I've ever seen before. It certainly does not look like a college team playing zone. You rarely see zone in the NBA, but their collective length, I mean, like the kind of passing lanes you can usually get against a 2-3 zone if you rotate the ball around the perimeter to the side, then back to the top and so forth, they close so fast. I mean, it really is um, imposing. You know, LeBron was talking about bleeping in your pants. Look, if I was on the right wing (laughs) and that 2-3 zone rotated over towards me with all those arms up, you know, and all those guys in the back with eyes on me, that might happen, Michael. I can I can I can acknowledge that. I hey, can admit that. Same, for sure. I'm right there with you. Um I'll need a diaper. I think that one of the things that out of the first two games that really made me feel a little optimistic too, if I'm too much ahead. information, Michael. Come on. I'm too much I'm information. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um so I don't know if Miami's zone is uh, going to be as effective going forward. I mean, the Boston Celtics did a really good job adjusting to what Toronto did in the previous series. And as that series went on, they had more success against the different defensive coverages that Nick Nurse was throwing at them. So what it comes down to is, uh, you know, uh, like finding either mixing up more coverages, playing better man to man. I don't like, I don't know. If with Gordon playing big minutes, this is a a sustainable option for you because they just have so many different weapons, so many different ball handlers, so many different guys who are comfortable attacking from the weak side off a catch or uh, shooting over the top and being capable of making it. That's another way to beat the zone that uh, Boston had success with uh, in game three. So I don't know what adjustments Eric Spolster will go to. I just can't wait to see what they are. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I do think there was times against the zone where they Boston looked reluctant or just not up to the task of shooting to beat it from the outside, right? And I do think that that is one area where I've been kind of down on Hayward's overall impact into this series. But I do think if you combine his shooting ability, the fact that you have to respect his shot and his ability to make quick passes to guys and, and keep the ball moving around the perimeter, I do think that that is a, you know, a major way he can help uh, – you know, Boston's offense, even if he's not, you know, shooting the ball great himself, um, just because the other options when they didn't have him, it's either like, okay, Tice is on the court more, or you're living and dying with Marcus Smart, 
shooting you know a lot in high volume and I think either way you'd, you'd probably rather have Hayward in that particular spot so um, that's one thing I'm tracking here as we go forward in this series um, I'm not going to give him all the sole credit like the Boston media seems to love to give him though it was uh, it was pretty pretty rough in some of these press conferences Michael I gotta say like uh, you know I, I do feel bad this is not just a Boston problem by the way like it's sort of like the same thing with New Orleans where every single one of uh, the Pelicans players would just constantly get asked like five questions about Zion. Like at some point, it's like I've a- answered every question there is about Zion. Like it's kind of the same deal with Anthony Davis. You know, he'll have like a game winner and then people will ask him like three questions about did LeBron inspire you for the game winner? It's like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm my own human being. And like, I do think that there's so much of a superstar culture in the NBA right now that you know, people like to go to the the headline names or the, you know, the SEO friendly questions sometimes. And I guess, uh, you know, if I was Jason Tatum, I would have been like, you know what, it's nice to have Gordon back, but come on, show me a little respect. He would never do that, but I wanted to do that on his behalf. All right, Michael, real quick to, as a reset here to close this episode, have you given any thought to updated finals predictions? I mean, obviously we, we made our, our bets or our, our picks before the start of the, um, the respective <laughs> yep. series. Have has anything changed on the ground? Like, do you still feel like, um, you know, I had Lakers Celtics. Um, do you still? Feel, I think you had Nuggets Celtics. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I had Nuggets in seven, and I'm not like. <laughs> I don't guess waver. Like, don't waver. You no, don't want to um, waver. Yeah, Stick well, with it. It's like I, I can't. I just don't even believe in changing your prediction at the beginning of a series. Like I'm still at my heart think that the Rockets are going to win it all. So, um, no, I'm not changing from Nuggets and seven. And I believe I had, what was it? Celtics and five, obviously that, that that's not going to happen. Um, I, I still would, I still think that the Celtics are going to win this series. Um, and that not being, not, not having to play to your point about Gordon Hayward, playing all those minutes and feeling sore uh the extra day off or extra two days off i guess they're not playing until wednesday um is pretty significant for him and for kemba walker too who's battling some uh or had battled a a knee problem and looked uh, a little exhausted at the end of some of these games so i think boston's winning i'm not going to give a game prediction i just i can't do that for my own sanity and my own superstitious Beliefs, I'm, star- but- I'm starting to feel like it's going to go seven, just kind of one of those series one way or another, it's going to go seven. I'm still sticking with Boston in that series, though. Um, and I, I think that could be unfortunate. I kind of wonder if Miami matches up better with the Lakers than Boston does for a, a possible final wow. just because of Bam. Um, but, you know, we're getting ahead Bam. of ourselves. Yeah, why not? Can, you don't uh, elaborate, please. I would love to hear what you what do you have to say about that. Well, you got to deal with LeBron and Anthony Davis. I'd like to have Bam on my team. That sounds like a pretty straightforward and obvious answer. The disrespect of Daniel Tice. You're right. We'll get into this in another episode. Well, I forgot who Daniel Tice is because he's just in foul trouble. It's a Tyler's Terror series, man. He was great against the Raptors. Here I go hyping him up, hopping on this uh, Celtics you know, train of, of hype machine, and then now he's in foul trouble every five seconds, can't stay on the court. Uh, he's lucky Gordon Hayward came to save him. Um, all right. Well, we'll leave it on that note, Michael. It sounds like we're both pretty much where we were. We'll double back later this week when it'll probably be time for us to, or maybe for you to flip-flop uh, once the Nuggets are, are headed towards that sweep that you mentioned. Um, I kid. 
did slightly. I think it could go five, but I think that Denver's in some real, real trouble in these Western Conference finals. All right, Michael, they can email us openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Please send those emails in because as Michael mentioned, there's a little bit of a break in the schedule. So we'll have less games to break down later this week when we tape on Thursday. We'll take all your questions. We've got a couple awesome ones from overseas, Michael, that I'll, uh, I'll be breaking out on the next episode. They can also find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word now michael's on instagram and twitter at michael vias and victor pina i'm on instagram at ben.goliver on twitter at ben Golliver. be sure to check out my washington post newsletter this week it's about um, the help from unexpected sources that anthony davis and lebron james are getting from their lakers teammates also have a big column about anthony davis that is online right now talking about how will people uh, respond to him should the lakers go on and win it all. All right, Michael. Until later this week, I'll talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. Zen Nicotine Pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life. Because it's smoke-free, hands-free, and hassle-free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouch in is you. Visit Zen.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zen. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events... You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.